So as, a, as an academic, one of, the, one of the things obviously we academics like to do is think a lot about the life of the mind. And we're, I'm grateful that uh, Christ teaches us that uh, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That is an all-encompassing sort of love. And so we academics like the, the mind part. One of the things that my fellow elders have also keep reminding me through paying attention to them is that it, it doesn't help to focus just on feelings or just on the mind, just on relationships, but all of it. And so as an academic, I have to be reminded, pay attention also to people's emotions. Pay attention to the way people are experiencing life. And so I want to start this morning just with a sort of pastoral consideration about maybe the emotions some might be bringing into the room. And the first sort of consideration that I think is super important for us to pay attention to is that a lot of people may be coming to this conversation with a great deal of anxiety, a great deal of worry, maybe a great deal of anger and frustration. And I would like to honor that set of emotions just a second. And I would like to indicate that there is a sort of faithfulness and beauty if you happen to be coming into this room with anxiety or worry or even anger. And that is that at its best, what those emotions point to is a desire to take seriously Scripture and to take seriously the will of God. And some of you may be worried. Does this sort of step forward indicate a lack of willingness to submit to the authority of Scripture? You're asking, perhaps, does this mean that we don't care about the will of God? Does this mean we don't care about obedience to God's will? And I want to suggest to you that that is a highly laudable intention and concern that we want to honor and that we want to take seriously. On the other hand, I don't know about you, but for me, when I get in a place of anxiety or I get in a place of anger, there are ugly things that can come out of me when I'm in that place. I can begin to speak down to people. I can be impatient. I can talk to people in a way that they don't deserve to be talked to. I can judge their motives. I can judge their intentions. And I want to suggest to you, if that's a temptation for you in those negative emotions or those difficult emotions, then I invite you as well, as I want to invite myself, not to fall into that, but instead to try to honor one another. If, on the other hand, you come to this room excited, grateful, happy about this decision, I, and at its best, those sorts of emotions of excitement and happiness at their best come out of a place of you being excited about the notion that this is a way in which this church in this place is seeking to honor the will of God, is seeking to honor the humanity of all people equally. There's all sorts of laudable things about that excitement and that happiness and the delight about the possibility of what that means in the life of this church. At the same time, I don't know about you, but I know for me that sometimes when I'm in those places, I can get in a sort of triumphalistic sort of place. I can begin to look down my nose at people who don't see things the way I see them. I can think, well, you're just not quite as enlightened as me if you don't see it the way I see it. And I want to suggest to you that that's not a healthy place. I don't want to be that way, and if you're tempted to that, I want to suggest to you, invite you also to try to avoid the sort of negative possibilities 
or the sort of damaging possibilities for the life of the church that can come with your own excitement and your own happiness about this decision. At the same time, some of you may come with none of those. And you may, you may just be coming in saying, I don't know what I think about any of this, but I'm here to listen. And I want to encourage you as well. Keep leaning in. Keep paying attention. And all together, let us honor one another. And maybe, maybe a way to encapsulate all of this is simply to say, what a wonderful opportunity for a church to have a place in which we have a challenging question and together as a church we're going to say we know we don't all agree we know this is difficult we know there are a variety of texts that have to be grappled with but how wonderful it is to be a church together where we come together grapple together listen together learn from one another honor one another and out of that come out stronger honoring loving even more affection for one another one of the one of the hardest things i've had in my experience in work work and ministry in a church of course is the sort of antagonism that can come in the life of a church but i've had a number of occasions where i've had initial antagonism with others in a church setting and then when we were able to sit face to face and listen to each other walk away with a deeper affection for one another than we had going into it because we listened to each other and even if we didn't agree we listened and honored one another i'm thinking about one person right now in particular who one day many many years ago we had this sharp tension that was painful and we sat down at lunch one day just he and me across the table from each other he told me what he thought and me going in, being the academic you know, egghead, my friends had said to me, don't you go in there being a theologian. You just go in there and tell them how you feel. And I thought, what? But I thought, I'll submit to the advice of my friends. And I went in there. He told me what he thought. And then I told him what I felt. And we went away with a deeper affection with one another. And I encourage you to take that as a possibility. Learn from each other. Talk to each other, honor one another, love one another. We're going to do a four-week series. Here's our four, four weeks we're going to do. This week, we're going to talk about biblical interpretation and the story of Scripture. Weeks two and three, we're going to talk about some key scriptural texts and questions that come from those texts. And then the fourth week, we're going to talk about questions on contemporary relevance and implication. This week... We're going to talk about, uh, first here, two ways of reading the Bible. Now, there's lots of ways to read the Bible, lots of ways to interpret Scripture, but I'm just going to talk about two today uh, because I think these two are most pressing and of most importance to us in our context. The first one of these is the traditional Churches of Christ model. Alexander Campbell, well, first let me back up just a second. For those of you who don't know, uh, Otter Creek is a Church of Christ. That laughter says volumes, doesn't it? <laughs> we are a church of Christ. Churches of Christ come from a movement in the American religious history 
going back to the early 1800s. Early 1800s, there were a man named Alexander Campbell, there was a man named Barton W. Stone. They both on their own were trying to ask, can't we transcend the division between different groups of Christians? Can't we find a way to stop all this bickering and arguing between Presbyterians and Baptists and, and even the different kinds of Presbyterians? You think churches of Christ are bad? You should look at the Presbyterians in the 1800s. I mean, they're just like, you know, even they're, well, all sorts of divisions and strife. And they began to ask the question, can't we find a way simply to be Christians only? It's a beautiful question. Can't we be Christians only? Rather than different kinds of Christians, refusing to have communion one with the other. And on their own, Campbell, Stone, they were doing this sort of work. In time, they found each other, and they joined forces, and it became the Stone-Campbell movement. Now, Alexander Campbell, in his desire to try to affect unity among Christians, uh, asked, how, how might we go about doing that? And what he suggested, what he argued for, he didn't suggest, he argued for it. He said, the way we can affect unity among divided Christians is to do what he called restore the ancient order. Restore the ancient order. So the idea there was, if we will do today what they did in the New Testament, then we can affect unity of Christians. We just want to be New Testament Christians. We want to simply do today what they did in the New Testament. And if we do that, we can bring about unity of all the divided Christians. And if we bring about unity of all the divided Christians, then we can evangelize the world and we will see a transformation in human history because the church, which has been sort of hobbled in its witness by its division, can now with one voice proclaim the gospel to the world. It's a beautiful vision, laudable agenda. Well, what does it mean to restore the ancient order? What's that look like? What's that mean? And what Campbell argued for was what he called a regulative principle. And what he means by a regulative principle is to look and see what was done in the New Testament and the church then do the things that are found there in the New Testament. And so a regulative principle is the idea that if we find in the Bible a command to do such and so that still we would presume applies, or an example, an approved example that we presume applies, or a necessary inference from the various commands or examples or scriptures, then that's what we'll do. And note this, this is super important to note, if you can't get it in the New Testament, if it's not explicitly allowed or commanded or taught in the New Testament, then the things that are not there are not permitted. This is what's referred to as the notion of the silence of the Scriptures. Speak where the Bible speaks. Be silent where the Bible is silent. Now, what happens then is through this use of this way of interpreting the Bible, um, we come up with, in our tradition, a list of practices that we say must be done to be a faithful New Testament church. That language is super important. So the idea is that through interpreting the Bible this way, we're going to come up with a list of practices, and if you keep these practices, then you are a faithful New Testament church. If you do not do these things, 
then you are not a faithful New Testament church. And it's important to note that on a lot of these things, there's not one verse that will give you that stuff. So let, let me give you some examples on this stuff. Um, weekly communion. Now, you may or may not know this, but um, a lot of churches do not practice communion weekly. Uh, we do. Have you wondered why? Why do we practice weekly communion? There's no verse in the Bible that says practice communion weekly. It's not there. Well, why then is it so important to churches of Christ to practice communion weekly? Moreover, why is it that churches of Christ have said you practice it every Sunday and no other day of the week? Why that? Well, this is the way typically that argument worked. Um, you have Jesus with the 12 gathers and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So, got that verse into the Gospels, right? Then you have Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Paul's on his missionary journeys. He's in Troas. And there it says, Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached. Okay, so in this verse, all you, have, you don't have a command. You just have a, an example, right? That on the first day of the week, on that particular first day of the week, when Paul is in Troas, they broke bread, which is a presumption that this is the Lord's Supper, they broke bread on the first day of the week. I said, well, okay. So there's a story, and he happened to be in Troas, and on that Sunday, they, had, they broke bread, which we presume is having communion together. So why? You got to do it on first Sunday. You got to do it on Sunday, only on Sunday, and every Sunday. Well, then you go to 1 Corinthians 16. Here you have a command from Paul to meet every Sunday. Paul there says, now concerning the collection for the saints, note there's nothing here about the Lord's Supper. Okay, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so I've, I've, I've put in King James Version for you. <laughs> because that's where a lot of us got this, right? As I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. I've just got all sorts of flashbacks just from hearing that language. Um, so note here that he gives them a command to meet every Sunday. And so if you string all of those things together, say some, Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Paul and Troas, they, they, had, they did the thing in remembrance of Jesus on Sunday in Troas. And then in Corinthians, he says, we'll meet every Sunday. So he says, meet every Sunday, and we know that when Paul was in Troas on Sunday, he did the Lord's Supper, and Jesus said, do this and remember me. You put all that together, what do you get? Every Sunday, do the Lord's Supper. Now you say, well, why only on Sunday? Because of the regulative principle. The regulative principle is you only do what it says to do, and if it doesn't give you permission to do it, you don't do it. So only on Sunday. So this is the way, traditionally, in churches of Christ, we've interpreted the text about how to do church. So, another quick example. Singing, a cappella singing. 
where do, where do we get acapella singing from? Now, again, for those of you who aren't from Churches of Christ, you might think, what, what are you talking about? We don't do acapella singing. Well, that's because you're at Otter Creek in 2023. <laughs> but at Otter Creek in what year, Fred? 2017. So prior to 2017, we would just be doing acapella. Now, what you also may not know is that for a lot of history in Churches of Christ, if you did instrumental music, you were seen as not a faithful Christian church. It was seen as a matter which could, I'm, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not making light. In a lot of churches of Christ, it was seen as a matter that would mean you could go to hell. And you say, well, where does that come from? It comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 combined with the regulative principle. That is, it's a reading of Ephesians 5.19 through the regulative principle. What's Ephesians 5.19 say? Sing and make melody in your hearts unto the Lord. And you say, what? Well, think about it. What's the command? Sing. That's not complicated. Sing. Make melody in your hearts unto the Lord. And you say, well, why no instrumental music? Because it does not say play. And I'm not, again, we shouldn't make light of this. Families have split over this. Churches have split over this. Whole denominations have been formed around this. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But it's at the heart of the DNA of the structure of our, of our denomination. So the idea here is, again, the regulative principle, right? There's the verse. We hear what the words say, but what do we do with that verse? What we do with that verse is mediated through this way of interpretation. It says do this because it says do this, and it doesn't say do this. If you're going to be faithful, you do this, and you do not do this. Think about elders. Where do we get the way we thought about church polity? Well, in Churches of Christ, we have local leadership, congregational autonomy. So the local congregation makes decisions. Nobody tells our church what to do. We make decisions for what we do in this particular church. And we've had male leaders only and male leaders who are married. Where does that come from? It comes from a regulative principle reading of 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3 says, if any man desires to be an elder or a bishop, he should be, and he gives these qualifications, and it says he should be a husband of one wife, and so forth. Now, what I'm going to talk about, that that, actually, that text is actually a whole lot more complicated than what I just said, but not this week. But that's the way some of, it, some of the versions translate it. And so, so there it is. So, so think, about, think about the instrument, instrumental music thing just a second. Right? It says sing and not play. 1 Timothy 3. It says a man, not a woman. So since it says a man and not a woman, by the regulative principle, it's clear. An elder cannot be a woman. It's simple, right? Except maybe it's not so simple. Because in our reading of that, we are applying a principle of interpretation, guess what, that is not in the Bible. It is a principle of interpretation 
that we bring to the Bible as opposed to a reader's guide inspired preface to the Bible that tells us how to read the Bible. Um, or a last one, last example real quick, uh, Sunday assemblies. Uh, we see Sunday assemblies in the New Testament. We do not see things like Easter or Christmas or the traditional Christian calendar. So in the history of Churches of Christ, we haven't typically honored Easter or Christmas as special days in the calendar because it's not in the New Testament. Again, the regulatory principle. What's it say? It says meet on the first day of every week. First day of every week, first day of every week, celebrate the, re the resurrection of Christ, to practice communion, set by, lay by in store, so forth. But nowhere in the New Testament do you get Easter or Christmas. And so that's not part of what we do. Want to be a faithful New Testament church? You do this. You don't do this because it's not in the Bible. Now, first I want to note the strengths of that approach and the strength of our tradition. The strength of our tradition, I would suggest, is first of all, there's a, at least a putative simplicity to this. That is, it is, it is trying to make this thing not so complicated. We don't have to have some smarty pants, powerful authority on high hand down to us what we've got to do, and instead it welcomes all people to gather around with open text and take Scripture seriously. And that is truly a beautiful thing. It invites us to take Scripture seriously. It says, look, if you're going to do congregational autonomy, then you better be serious about reading your Bible. And you better be serious about studying your Bible. You can't just mess around with it. You gotta study it. It invites us to dig in. Not, not a light reading. But if you go back and you look at a lot of the hardcore Church of Christ folks from the 30s and the 40s, those people are smart as a whip. They know their Greek, they know their logic. They know how to argue. They know their rhetoric. They are smart, well-intentioned people who are saying, love God with your mind. Love God with your mind. And love God with your mind through encountering a serious engagement with Scripture. All of those things are really beautiful. At the same time, there are real challenges with this approach. Problems, even, I would say, with the, with the approach. The first problem I would suggest with the approach is that it simply assumes a restrictive regulative principle. Go back to the instrumental music thing, right? It says sing, not play. Well, really? Is that the way we want to do this? Some have said, yes, it is the way we want to do it. But it's a questionable assertion. It's at least, at a minimum, a debatable assertion. You know, did Paul intend, for example, that a letter he wrote to a church in Corinth almost 2,000 years ago be the model for how every church does its assemblies 2,000 years later? Well, we have assumed yes is the answer to that question. 
But it's a fair question to say, is yes the right answer to that question? Really? Is it as simple as that? That what Paul wrote to Corinth 2,000 years ago is the model for what we should do? The answer may be yes, but it's an honest, debatable assertion that is worth debating. A second sort of problem or challenge with this approach is that it focuses our attention primarily on how we do church assemblies. And it's historically drawn our attention away from the gospel story itself. That's worth chewing on a long time. But let me move to the next potential problem. Three, following this interpretive scheme, it's important to think about the fruit of it. So as I said earlier this morning, we began as a unity movement. Can't all of us Christians just be Christians and not different kinds of Christians and just be one? We began as a unity movement, and by the time you get to 1906, we were two different denominations who couldn't get along with each other and split. And by the time you get to the 1960s, one of those splits split majorly again so that what happened is that a unity movement has now given three new denominations to the United States. Moreover, within Churches of Christ, which has continued to hold hard to this notion of the regulative principle, we've now had divisions over all manner of things. We've split over whether to support missionary societies, whether to use one cup in communion or a lot, whether to have kitchens in the church building, whether to support orphanages or Christian colleges out of the church treasury. One of my professors in seminary at ACU said that he had cataloged 75 different issues over which churches of Christ, just one of those three denominations, over which churches of Christ had divided reading the Bible this way. This is painful. Some of you have families who have been divided because we read the Bible this way. There are some of us in this setting that are wondering, can I be a part of this church? And you're having to carry a great weight of having been, uh, having been told all your life, you have to read the Bible this way. It's a heavy reality that has intense psychological and emotional impact upon communities and people in those systems and in those families and in those congregations. But remember that those matters are not what the New Testament or Paul himself calls matters of first importance. Let me remind you in Paul, Paul does talk about some things are more important than other things. In 1 Corinthians 15 he'll say, um, in talking about proclaiming matters of first importance, he says that Christ has been raised from the dead and was sacrificed for our sins and appeared unto many. We're not arguing about that. And Paul says that's the first importance. I'm, I'm going to insert a little parenthetical that's just from Lee here just a second. It pains me to realize in a world in which there is so much distressing in human history, 
and so many pains and hurt and violence and oppression and un, being unsettled that you can have the Christian community that says, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that Christ died for our sins. We believe that Christ was killed at the hands of Pilate, suffered, died, was buried, was raised again. Did you hear what I just said? That's the most incredible story that in many ways is unfathomable to believe. And yet we have people who believe that, but because we have these divisions over reading particular texts in particular ways, we then begin to say, you're not a Christian because you don't agree on this reading of this text. We don't only divide, but we end up rejecting the claim of the other that they believe in the Lordship of Christ. Fourth thing that's problematic about this is that it appears arbitrary in what is timeless and what is time-bound. It appears arbitrary in saying, well, this applies to us and this does not apply to us. So what the tradition has done is it'll say certain things are cultural or incidental. So greet one another with a holy kiss from Romans. That's cultural and doesn't apply to us. Women, cover your heads, 1 Corinthians. Well, that's cultural and incidental and doesn't apply to us. Men are required to lift up holy hands. Well, that's incidental and cultural, doesn't apply to us. Having the Lord's Supper in an upper room, that's incidental, doesn't apply to us. Timeless and required, on the other hand, that is required of us. Women being silent. Women not serving as elders. Weekly communion. And you say, well, why does it fall, one fall in one and others fall into the other? And people get, give reasons. You know, you can dig into the, into the history and find the reasons that are given. But oftentimes, nonetheless, the distinctions appear arbitrary. Let me give you a, a very relevant example for this conversation about women in the eldership. So, 1 Timothy 2 and 3 is key in all this conversation. And in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, it says, Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. That's chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. But note that that's in a paragraph with verse 8 and 9. So let me read you verse 8 and 9. That's just a couple of verses above. Verse 8 says, 8 and 9 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided, or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Now we've got some gold on fingers in here. We've got some pearls. We've got men who argue. We've got men who don't lift up holy hands. Same paragraph. 
why silencing the women but not the rest? And that's a really interesting question. Why silence the women but not the rest? It reminds me of an episode one time. One of the phrases that points to this sort of importance of distinguishing cultural from timeless was the phrase, um, in matters of opinion, charity, in matters of doctrine, unity, right? So the idea there is that in the things that it's okay to disagree on, love each other. In matters that it's not okay to agree on, you have to be unified in matters of opinion, charity, and matters of doctrine, unity. And I must confess that my, my attitude was not charitable, but as an undergrad, I know you can't imagine me ever being snarky, but um, I was a senior in college and I was sitting in one of my professor's classes and he had used this phrase in very, you know, great consternation and very soberly in matters of opinion, charity, in matters of doctrine, unity. And so I was kind of tired of listening to him. And so I raised my hand and I said, how do you know if it's a matter of doctrine or if it's a matter of opinion? And he said, because doctrine is doctrine <laughs> and opinion is opinion. <laughs> now, Otter Creek has had a history of challenging the conclusions drawn by the traditional Churches of Christ interpretive scheme. That's our history. Many years ago, for example, the conclusions drawn, and now this next paragraph is really important, so please stick with me. Every sentence in this paragraph is important. Many years ago, for example, the conclusions drawn from 1 Timothy 3 by our tradition were challenged by Otter Creek. 1 Timothy 3 says, a deacon must be the husband of one wife. Otter Creek decided that this did not prohibit women from being deacons. And there you had the beginning of what we have called the MCC. A few years ago, we challenged the traditional Churches of Christ conclusion regarding instrumental music. In our Wednesday night Vesper service, we share communion, where traditionally this was restricted to Sundays. So, what then? Is this just loosey-goosey, do whatever you want that doesn't care about the Bible? Or are these developments changes, these changes in the tradition grounded in the Bible in any way honoring Scripture. And it's super important for me to say, on behalf of all the eldership, the answer to this question of whether these changes are grounded in the Bible is an unqualified yes. And on this most recent decision, many of us in the eldership have spent years studying Restudying, plowing, and replowing. Now, the problem is that we as a church have not had a formal statement of saying, this is the way we are trying to interpret the Bible. This is the way we are trying to be faithful to Scripture. 
But nonetheless, if you pay attention to Josh's preaching, you pay attention to a lot of our Sunday school class teachers, you'll find a different emphasis. That we have stopped looking for a pattern in the New Testament to plop down in the 21st century. We've stopped looking for a blueprint for how to do Sunday mornings in church polity and instead have focused on living out the story of the gospel. Now, I'm told I've got six more minutes, so just stick with me and I'll, I will be done in six minutes. But this next part's really important as well. So living out the story of the gospel, what do we mean by that? And this is our kind of second way today of thinking about how to interpret the Bible. There's this fascinating, I learned this from John Mark Hicks, my colleague at Lipscomb. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is asking the Corinthians to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem which has suffered under famine. They're hungry, and he wants them to take up a collection to help fund feeding them. And, you know, in the kind of regulative principle mode, we would kind of ask ourselves the question, well, what's, what's, the, what's the rule? Right? Give me a rule. Give me a blueprint. Give me a pattern. Tell me what the rule is for the collection. But Paul explicitly says, I'm not going to give you a command. Instead, what he does is he points them to the gospel. And he says, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He doesn't give them a rule. He doesn't say give 10%. This is what he says. He says, this is the story. Now, act like you think this story is true. Isn't that beautiful? This is the story. Now you act like you think this story is true. And that's what we mean when we talk about trying to live out the story of the gospel. It means that we're seeking then to find ways to live true to the gospel in our day and age. I'm going to try to do something in the four minutes I got left. Let's try it. Imagine, this next slide, um, imagine that somebody finds an unknown Shakespeare play. They find a manuscript somewhere lying around, and all of a sudden they're all excited that they found a new Shakespeare play that nobody knew about. And they start looking at it, and they realize it's got six acts, but then in Act 5, next slide, what they discover is that it has seen one, it has seen two, and then the manuscript is broken, and then it picks back up with Act 6. Act six. And then you ask yourself the question, well, what would good Shakespearean actors, scholars, playwrights do to put this play on. They know the whole story. They're just missing whatever's in Act 5 after scene 2. What would they do? Well, they'd get together. They'd study it really well. They'd work on it really hard. You'd bring your best Shakespeare scholars. You're not going to play fast and loose with it. You're going to know a sense of tragedy, a sense of drama, a sense of humor. And then they're going to get together, and they're going to put the play on. And when they get to Act 5, scene 3, what are they going to do? Repeat Act 5, Scene 2 several times. No. They're going to faithfully improvise. And then they'll pick back up with Act 6. Now, let's go to the next slide and think about the Bible just a second. If you think about the Bible as a six-act play, creation, promise, exodus, prophets, the Messiah and the early church in Act 5, 
and then Acts 6, the triumph of God. And then you consider, so what do we do as the church to be a faithful church? Repeat Act 5, Scene 2 over and over again and say, well, what it means to be a faithful church is to just keep doing Act 5, Scene 2 over and over again. Well, no, maybe it's to be well-schooled in the story of Scripture. Bring your best scholars, your best, you've got to really know Scripture really well to do this. Dig in and faithfully improvise in your time and in your place, taking Scripture very seriously, but with a fundamentally different approach than saying, tell me what they did in Act 5, Scene 2, and that's what we'll do today. Does that make sense? So, what we're going to be doing then is trying to find a way in which we think about this way of reading Scripture, a sort of narrative story, a narrative, a story that we believe to be fundamentally true, the most true, wonderful story in the history of all humanity, and what does it mean for us to live according to that together. So, thank you for your attention, and we'll pick back up with this next week, but let me, let me close with um, 60 seconds of exhortation. Love one another. Paul says at the end of Galatians, he says, the only thing that matters, that's strong language, Galatians 5, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. And then in chapter 6, he says, the only thing is a new creation. This is what matters. Let us love one another. Amen.